looked me straight in the nipples and tell me I didn't just nail that. Dark secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark secret place with Brian Suits on KFI. The new three-hour version, KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here every Saturday now from 8 p.m. to 11. And tonight, uh, a little later on, a naval mystery from 1942. Not not solved. And I'm not solving it tonight. I'm just going to pass on to you a naval mystery from 1942. That uh, perhaps you've never heard of before. Also, uh, right when you think it's time to retire the F-15 Eagle uh, in in production since 1975. So let's do it. Uh, 85, 95, 2005, 2015. Let's go with 43 years. 43 years old. But what the hell in a world with B-52s scheduled to fly until 2050, 2050. Just short of a century. Why not extend the F-15? And also, you know what? Because it kind of makes sense uh, on that a little later on. And uh, those super-duper cheap drones that your kids have, uh, you know, the annoying kids down at the end of the cul-de-sac, or as my neighbors say, me, uh, I've got a couple, how those are being weaponized, a virtually infallible guided missile with lethal effect with hand grenades, 40-millimeter grenades, for less than $200 with over a mile range. Could be coming to a neighborhood near you. Uh, We'll have an update on that a little later on. But uh, to the subject at hand, uh, in accordance with an agreement made in Singapore, now two months ago, the North Koreans repatriated 55 boxes that they claim have the remains of uh, U.S. soldiers. And uh, here is a report from Reuters at uh, Osan Air Force Base in South Korea from yesterday. Solemn ceremony as soldiers carry out 55 small cases draped in U.N. flags. Inside are believed to be the remains of U.S. soldiers killed in the Korean War, finally on Allied soil after being held for decades in North Korea. On Friday, Pyongyang returned the remains, which were flown to a U.S. airbase in South Korea, a first step by the country to keeping a promise made in Singapore. And these boxes, what's happening here is you have a bunch of U.S. troops, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Army, uh, and they're each individually taking a box out of a C-17. Each box is wrapped in a U.N. flag. The North Koreans felt that that was a major concession. Uh, They certainly were not going to wrap these American remains in an American flag. And they apparently in the negotiations, what's been going on for the past 55 days, including a meeting that the North Koreans didn't even attend, um, has been the negotiation uh, about whether or not cameras will be allowed. The North Koreans finally conceded to that. And if cameras are allowed and an American plane lands in Pyongyang, um, how should the boxes be delivered? The Americans obviously said these are American war dead. We want them in American flags. Don't worry. We'll bring them. We'll do it. We'll box them up for you. Whatever. But they're going to be in American flags. The North Koreans said, deal's off. This is, this is how they operate. And, and the, the fact that this is not known, it's just simply because it's been sort of forgotten by the American media. But this is how they operate. And they said, no. 
These men invaded North Korea. They got what they deserved. They're not going to have American flags. So what we agreed on was a U.N. flag wrapping each box. These boxes, if you walked out of Costco with just a medium-sized microwave, this is the approximate size of, of that box. Um, and so it's tightly wrapped in a U.N. flag. And uh, I don't know. I would, here's what I would have done. I would have told the C-17 not to fly a straight line back to South Korea. I would have had a detail on that C-17 with 55 American flags, and we would have unwrapped the boxes with the U.N. flags, and I would have rewrapped them with American flags. But that's me leaning forward in the saddle on that one. So anyway, uh, the troops are unloading each box, um, <clears throat> you know, in a slow march. There's a very poignant photo of uh, the, the boxes in the C-17 in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven rows of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven rows of seven, uh, and then six uh, across the top for a total of six to 55. So there you go. But we know a little too much about the North Koreans. So what we're saying right now is presumed remains of American soldiers because we have been punked by them in the past. Anyway, back back to this report. U.S. President Donald Trump tweeted Thursday evening thanking Kim Jong-un. He says, after so many years, this will be a great moment for so many families. The pledge to transfer the remains was seen as a goodwill gesture by Kim in June. And though it's taken longer than Washington would have liked, it rekindles hopes for progress in nuclear talks. The handover also coincided with the anniversary of the Korean War armistice. And on Friday, Kim Jong-un was seen at a cemetery visiting his own veterans. Because, by the way, North Korea is not called the armistice. It's called the great glorious victory over the American capitalists and their running dogs. They don't call it the armistice at all. They say that North Korea brought the entire world to a halt through its bravery and uh, its superior system and uh, juche vigor and uh, the correctness of socialism and etc. The armistice signed in 1953 ended fighting, but the two Koreas are still technically at war because the peace treaty was never signed. Pyongyang is calling for a formal end as the first process for peace. And they say it's an important way Washington can guarantee the North's security in return for giving up its nuclear weapons. And Kim Jong-un is videoed in front of a bunch of actual Korean War veterans. And these are, these, this, isn't, this is not Clint Eastwood in, uh, in uh, Get Off My Lawn, in uh, whatever it's called, uh, Camaro. The, the angry Korean War vet guy in, in Detroit. Gran Torino. Gran Torino. These are people who, who the war ended in North Korea. And they had to stay in North Korea because they're North Koreans. And, man, they look frail and old. They look very, very, very old. Very, very th – every single one of them, their, their old, old-timey uniform shirt is just baggy on them, just like uh, wet cotton or something, and just draping on them. And in front of them is Kim Jong-un at 33 years old, Porky with that ridiculous haircut, and they're all clapping wildly for him. And it just it's like this, let him have a seat or something. But so anyway, that's how they celebrated the armistice. Um, now for the United States, these 55 remains will be flown to Hawaii where the, uh, the forensic laboratory for what's called the DPAA, the uh, Defense POW MIA uh, uh I forget the, the, what the acronym stands for, but these are the people who, this was established after the Vietnam War, 
where they identify remains. Because the Vietnamese, here, here's the thing, the difference between the North Koreans and the Vietnamese, who I, I used to reflexively call the North Vietnamese, but the Vietnamese and the North Koreans, big, huge difference. The Vietnamese n- never bargained away the bodies. They just didn't want to pay for looking for them and exhuming them. And when the United States said, well, we will come to crash sites where no one survived a B-52, and we will excavate it, we'll remove the bodies, and we'll pay you a little something for your trouble, you know, the whole thing. The Vietnamese have, have not held the bodies hostage. The North Koreans have done this, and they've done this for years. So here's the scale of this. And granted, um, the, what the president said about uh, families, uh, you know, getting closure or whatever, uh, that's that's fine. Problem is there's... 55 families out there. Maybe they're not even families anymore. We haven't done the DNA testing on these. We don't even know if they're human bones. And oh, by the way, in case you're wondering, because I saw this covered this way on Thursday and Friday, that the missing American bodies from the Korean War were returned. The North Koreans gave those uh, those missing bodies. The, un- the, uh, the unreturned corpses of American soldiers have been returned by the North Koreans. No, 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 no. They gave 55 of what they claim to be American remains back. Folks, there's 7,000 missing from the Korean War alone. 7,000. At this rate, <laughs> at this rate, we'll be maybe uh, the, the, the B-52's last flight will be to fly remains back from North Korea. Uh, so why are there 7,000 missing from the Korean War? Well, I'll tell you when we come back. And also, I'll tell you what might be in those boxes, because the North Koreans have done this before. A lot of more coming up. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here until 11 p.m. because it's uh, 8 to 11 now. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappay with the news. I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried. Mama tried to raise me better. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Your weekly look at the war on terror stuff, weapons, F 15s. Militarized drones, military history, and a naval mystery in uh, the third hour. No reason. I'm just uh, just playing some Merle Haggard. Uh, And also, uh, by the way, because uh, we're here live, any updates in regards to the Carlton fire or other local fires, uh, we'll have them for you here. But uh, if if you're a mandatory evacuee, you already know it. And if there's helicopters in the air around you, you uh, already know it. Um, all right, so 55 remains were returned by the North Koreans. Uh, they were taken custody uh, uh, by the United States. And they are being transferred, or I guess by now, the uh, the remains have been transferred to the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. The uh, Pentagon has a couple of agencies that spin off from itself that aren't aren't really easy to classify. This one's pretty easy to classify. Um, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects, Projects Agency, is pretty much Star Wars on Earth. And it's not, it's not resident. It's physically not in the Pentagon. There's another one, DITRA, that maybe you've never heard of, Dis- Defense Threat Reduction Agency. And I can't even describe what they do because I'm not supposed to. But they're not in the Pentagon either. DPAA, their primary facility, the headquarters is in D.C., but their, their biggest laboratory is in Hawaii. And they have, for years and years and years and years, identified uh, American dead from the Vietnam War. Part of the reason that there is no unknown soldier from the Vietnam War is because forensic science had advanced so far 
that we're able now. There was no missing soldier. There was a guy. This is the. This was probably the most embarrassing moment for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. There was a Vietnam unknown soldier, but uh, they identified him. He was a he was a pilot. Uh, his aircraft uh, crashed in North Vietnam. Uh, he was identified. The family was notified, uh, and and all that. But th- so the Vietnam unknown soldier actually is known. Uh, but they had planned for that without thinking ahead. And so there's obviously not going to be an unknown soldier from the Gulf War, not going to be an unknown soldier from the L.A. riots, not going to be an unknown soldier from Iraq or, or Afghanistan uh, for two reasons. They, they have our DNA now. So, I mean, if there's just like a fleck of skin, they can that, that fleck of skin is going to get a military burial. <clears throat> Meanwhile, back in 1950, the Korean War begins in June of 1950. 7,000 American are missing. From the Korean War, there's been a reaccounting for how many dead uh, the United States suffered in the Korean War. The official number is, uh, uh, I want to say, like 38,000 dead. But what they found was that that number took into account every American service member that died from any cause anywhere around the world between 1950 and 53. So the the number that that they're, that they used to uh, bandy about uh, was uh, thirty eight thousand. Uh, 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 oh, I'm sorry, about thirty two thousand American dead, and that uh, included the missing, I believe. So it brought it up to about they called it north of thirty eight thousand. So we're talking about a three year conflict, June of 50 to July 53 when the armistice happened. And the majority of those 7,000 missing, you know, and again, 55 came back. In, in, in the past, the North, pardon me, the, North, the North Koreans have just put bones in boxes and then they get to, the, to Hawaii, to the DPAA laboratory, and that turns out to be dog bones or, or some kind of animal bones. The North Koreans have reasonably assured us that these are at least human remains. Um, so what were they doing in North Korea? And how can there be 7,000 missing in just a three-year conflict that was, you know, keep in mind, a limited conflict? Well, the answer is in the rhythm of the Korean War. So for purposes of scale, let's do this. Let's say that the that Florida is the Korean Peninsula. All right. Are we all good? Um, it kind of, it, it almost works perfectly if you flip Florida around where the panhandle points to the east. Because that would simulate North Korea's natural panhandle that goes up northeast. So anyway, imagine that Florida is split approximately halfway through it, right? The north is the Democratic People's Republic of North Florida. The south is the Republic of Florida. In June of 1950, the North Koreans crossed the demilitarized zone, 38th parallel, and invaded the south. Led by Soviet advisors, the North Korean army had actually been organized and had been fighting under the communist Chinese for over 15 years. Uh, They were the uh, Korean contingent to the Chinese uh, People's Liberation Army, uh, called in their language the Inmingun. And so when the Russians installed a communist government and uh, Kim Il-sung was the guy who came out on top, he was handed... Uh, a army ready to go, a battle-hardened army ready to go. By the way, Kim Il-sung was a captain in the Soviet army. 
in World War II. So there's that. He was not a he was not born on the holy mountain Mount Pictou in North Korea. He was born in Siberia in a logging camp and he was a captain in the North in the Soviet army in World War II. So anyway, this battle-hardened, well-trained, experienced army floods into South Korea. Who was in South Korea? Well, the Republic of Korea's army was really nothing more than a gendarmerie, uh, and there were American advisors. There were several hundred American advisors. There were precursors. Um, there were warnings sent to the 8th Army headquarters in Tokyo that the, that the North Koreans uh, were marshalling close to the border. There was the unmistakable sounds of tanks, uh, and of, uh, there was a smell of men, and that something was up. But the uh, MacArthur-led 8th Army in Japan had taken a big breather since, so let's call it 1945, because the war was over. The occupation duty of Japan was cush. You had a houseboy or a housegirl, whatever you wanted, uh, somebody ironing your uniforms. It was the ultimate garrison duty. Rarely did the combat units of MacArthur's 8th Army actually go out to the field and train. Rarely. And when they did... Their tents were set up by Japanese. Their food was prepared by Japanese. The vehicles were maintained and gassed up by Japanese. They, they really were not prepared to go to war. And then all of a sudden, in early June of 1950, they get the word. South Korea is being invaded. And Truman orders 8th Army to get to South Korea and start fighting and, <clears throat> and oppose this invasion. So off they go. And what's about to happen when we come back was really one of the most... Um, ignoble and humiliating four months in modern U.S. Army history. And this is where we get our 7,000 missing, a really, really horrific nightmare that happened in June, July, August, and September of 1950. We'll be back right after this. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here. Uh, Also, the North Korean, the, the facilities that they've shut down, all those nuclear facilities that they've shut down. Or are they? That and more coming up. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here until 11 KFI. AM 640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI, AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is super hyper local Sunday, Brian Suits. Whoa. Stark secret place. Psych. New hours, 8 to 11, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Uh, every Saturday for Dark Secret Place. Uh, talking about the 55, uh, theoretically, American remains returned by the North Koreans. Uh, yesterday, then Vice President Mike Pence will officially um, um, mark uh, and observe their return to the U.S. Uh, sometime next week, where theoretically they're all confirmed to be remains of U.S. soldiers. Uh, the the uh, Vietnamese used to try to include uh, any and all documentation and dog tags and things like that to sort of, you know, push the case that this really is who we found at this wreckage. The North Koreans have made little or no effort to do anything like that. They just say, here's here's remains box number five, and here's number seven. Um, sometimes they don't even, don't even give a location of it. But so 55 boxes were were presented out of 7,000 missing. So... How do you get 7,000 missing um, in, in North Korea? Well, again, the rhythm of the war is what dictated this because in June of 1950, the North Koreans invade South Korea, and it was a route. The route was on, and it was happening fast. Luckily, most of the North Koreans were on foot. Immediately, General MacArthur at 8th Army headquarters in occupied Japan has to alert all of his units that, hey, the balloon's up, this is a real war, no more of this occupation duty. 
where uh, his combat veterans from World War II were, were long gone. Of, of the ones who stayed in, they, uh, the, their careers took them elsewhere. So effectively, um, less than five years after the con- conclusion of World War II, no one has heard a shot fired in anger in the 8th Army. And in fact, for most of them, especially the ones who were drafted in 47 and 48, they're thinking, hey, the Army's pretty cool. I sit here, I get a Jeep, I'm just a private, and I have a maid. Uh, I'm in Japan and occupied Japan. It was good duty. And then theoretically, they go out to the field uh, and fire some rounds every couple of weeks or months or whatever, but they don't really break a sweat doing it. So the world's mightiest nation, the United States of America, with, with uh, nearly with a nuclear monopoly, just short of it, with the largest air force uh, that the world had ever seen, the largest navy, the whole thing, five years before we had all that stuff. June of 1950, there's not enough tanks in Japan that operate. There's not enough modern combat vehicles to put on boats and get to South Korea. It's, it's a one-day sail from Japan to South Korea, and not even that. But there's not enough vehicles that are operating in Japan to actually field a armor battalion. What they're doing back in the U.S., is they are recovering museum pieces, literally taking tanks off of pedestals at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and putting them on trains and shooting them west to San Francisco, where they're going to get on a boat. And within a month or so, they'll be in whatever is left of South Korea. That is how unprepared Douglas MacArthur's 8th Army was. The, the buck stopped at his desk, uh, by the way. But, but you can't hold MacArthur, who was a national treasure in uh, June of 1952, uh, to that standard. So anyway, the U.S. Army rushes to the uh, Korean Peninsula and begins combat in earnest with the North Koreans. We, we lack the anti-tank weapons. Forget about the tanks. The tanks that we had, the ones uh, that were operating, uh, were woefully inadequate. The North Koreans basically have the state-of-the-art Soviet World War II tank, the T-34 with the 85-millimeter gun. Um, the, the very, very dependable tank, and they have them in large numbers. It, it, is, uh, it, it was arguably... Uh, the most effective tank at World War II because there were a lot of them, and in mass uh, formations, they were very, very effective. Well, now the North Koreans have a lot of them, and we don't have many. And so the route's on, and now the Americans are in the way. Many, many, many ugly episodes happened uh, in the North Korean march down to the south. So in my little analogy, if you imagine that Florida is a Korean peninsula, within a few weeks, the Americans are retreated all the way back to Miami. And the North Koreans have the entire Florida Peninsula. They have the entire Korean Peninsula, in our case, all of Florida, right? And the Americans and South Koreans are in an area the size of Miami. And on the Korean Peninsula, uh, this is the the uh, city of Pusan, as we called it. Uh, there's a different name for it in Korea. But we called it the Pusan Perimeter. And finally, Americans are stiffening up. The artillery is getting there. And we're able to defend better than the North Koreans, uh, who now are at the end of their supply lines, are, are able to assault. Along the way, from the DMZ down to the southern uh, peninsula of South Korea, to the southern part of the peninsula, there were many, many ugly episodes where North Koreans overran American units. And we'll never, ever know about what happened. All we know is that they overran entire companies of 150 men or that, uh, whoever was alive. And they didn't take prisoners along the way. Um, how do we know this? Well, because in uh, in September of 1950, Douglas MacArthur used the Marines. Of all the military forces in the Pacific that were ready to go to war, 
The Air Force was not. The Army wasn't. Truman called for a naval blockade of North Korea. The Navy gave him the bad news that in the Pacific Ocean, the United States Navy, five years after World War II, did not have the ships to do a naval blockade of North Korea. Did not have the combat-ready, fully-maintained ships to do that. The only people who were ready for war were the Marines, even though they had World War II equipment, but, you know, screw it. So did the North Koreans. It was really going to be a war of whose, whose stuff works. And so the Marines landed at a port city called Incheon on the west coast of the Korean Peninsula, um, landed, moved inwards quickly. It was one of the most brilliant amphibious assaults of all time. I give credit to MacArthur for that, but he, has, he had dug himself a pretty deep hole by this time. And now with the Americans in the North Korean rear, uh, the Marines liberated uh, Seoul, and then they went north, liberating Pyongyang. The Pyongyang, by the way, is the only communist capital liberated during the Cold War. The North Koreans now realize they're about to be cut off. So they began headlong retreating back up the peninsula. So now it's September and October of 1950. And as we start moving up back up the peninsula, back up Florida, in my analogy, we start unearthing mass graves where we're seeing what the North Koreans do to American prisoners. Men are found in mass graves with their wrists tied behind their backs with wire, uh, shot in the head, bayoneted in the head, buried in shallow graves, um, uh, their boots taken off, no ID on them, no identity, no anything. The war turn, the tide of the war turns 180 degrees, and now U.N. forces, America, U.S. Army and Marines, push the North Koreans all the way north to the Chinese border. American troops are on the Yalu River, which is the Chinese border. Now it's November of 1950, so the war started in June of 1950. By November of 50, the United States has recovered, bounced back in a big way, and the Korean War looks like it's going to be brief, and it's going to end with North Korea being liberated. Then the Chinese enter the war. The, the primary foe that the United States had from November of 1950 on the armistice were the Chinese. The Chinese pushed the Americans back to what is basically what, what was stabilized, which is the border, the DMZ. And that's where the war spent the next uh, two years, two and a half years. Um, so in that retreat, so, and so remember I'm describing two different retreats. The initial retreat uh, f- from the DMZ South when the North Koreans invaded, and then after the American counteroffensive all the way up to the Chinese border, the Chinese entered the war, and there's another retreat, this one back to mid-peninsula where the front stabilized. Well, in that second retreat, hundreds of Americans, thousands of Americans were lost, left behind, got separated, uh, were, uh, were in some cases left for dead but were not dead, and, uh, or were dead and unburied and not accounted for. And those are the missing. That's how we get 7,000 missing. They effectively uh, came, 90% of the American missing from the Korean War came from the first six months of the Korean War, and most of them were in North Korea. And the North Koreans, and this is what they're not going to say out loud, didn't have a heck of a lot of interest in accounting for the bodies of the Americans killed on their sacred soil. Um, And, in fact, it became uh, sort of a competition between uh, North Korean communist politicians to uh, show less, uh, more disdain for the American dead than some other other commissar. And so huge mass graves were filled with American dead or whoever, or they were buried where they were found. Their dog tags weren't taken. The North Koreans didn't account for them because they just didn't care. So what they're afraid of saying out loud is they actually can't account for the probably about 5,000 Americans that are lost and missing somewhere in North Korea. 
<clears throat> and that they probably don't have a warehouse filled with these. And that it very well might be that they only had 55. But the reason that they're scurrilous dogs is because they don't, of their own good will, just give them back to us. They trade them. They're, they're trade bait. Uh, so how is that denuclearization going? Is this a symbol of it? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, I'll tell you why when we come back. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here talking uh, denu denuclearization. When we come back, KFI M640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian sits in here. New hours, fresh new hours, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. And uh, in the uh, third hour, a naval mystery from 1942 that's uh, never been solved. So anyway, uh, just talking to you about the, the how do we get 7,000 missing out of the Korean War, a war only three years long on a peninsula. And it, it came in two phases. The majority of them happened in the first six months, and most of them in North Korea. And the North Koreans have not been the best guys about returning them, not not for free anyway. Uh, and just to close this out, the, uh, ultimately the blame for the American lack of preparedness uh, in Asia to go to war on the Korean Peninsula did not land on Douglas MacArthur. He was relieved later on. When he was surprised by the Chinese and because he said things about stuff. But it was the Secretary of Defense, Lewis Johnson, who got turfed on this one by uh, Harry Truman. Uh, a, a famous quote uh, in, in the analysis after the Korean War, an American general said, quote, Many who never lived to tell the tale had to fight the full range of ground warfare from offensive to delaying action, unit by unit, man by man, hand to hand. That we are able to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat does not relieve us from the blame of having placed our own flesh and blood in such a predicament, close quote. It is, it is a taught in OCS and other things uh, to this day. By the way, uh, quick, quick uh, breaking news. Two guys dressed as Russian soldiers are currently standing guard at Trump's star on the Walk of Fame in Hollywood. <laughs> I just retweeted it. It's like 102. They're wearing wool great coats and fur hats. Well, they showed up at night. And, so. and, they're, and, a, and a Russian flag. Wow. That's hilarious. So anyway, um, so I bet one of them's Pickaxe Man. I'm just saying. That would be the completion of his performance art. Uh, well, so this is a symptom of, of uh, how the North Koreans will stretch you out no matter what the negotiation is. Now, now remember, last week on Thursday, uh, or Wednesday, I'm sorry, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo continues to insist that the North Koreans, in his, word, his words, have committed to full and complete verifiable denuclearization. Um, the, the way they returned these missing is uh, sort of a metaphor for how they operate. Um, they returned far fewer than they said they, they, were, go they were going to. There's, supposedly there's going to be more, but, but each delivery requires new negotiations. Maybe the next delivery, the North Koreans request that they're in North Korean flags. And so this is just how they operate. They they overpromise, they underdeliver, or they promise, then they underdeliver. That's a better way to put it. <clears throat> but so, we've heard a couple things over the past two weeks. The, the North Koreans are demolishing their satellite launch test facility. They're returning American war dead. Uh, they're taking down propaganda posters. Uh, they they haven't done a missile test since one year ago today. 
Uh, so happy Wonkiversary. The Hwasong 14 test that they did a year ago is the last missile test they did, but it's also the last one they've needed. So, but there's a pattern in all these things that I'm describing to you. Does returning American war dead denuclearize? No. Does demolishing a satellite launch vehicle test facility denuclearize? No. Um, does one year of uh, one year moratorium on missile tests uh, denuclearize? No. Um, because here's the thing. The North Koreans right now are in a process of identifying and destroying publicly facilities that have nothing to do with actually advancing their nuclear program. Because when they perfected an ICBM that could carry a payload of 500 kilograms in a 42-minute time of flight, then they had reached the end of their missile development for their purposes. They don't need the missile to get to Cape Town, South Africa. They need it to threaten America, North America. Okay, well, they have that. And their sixth nuclear test was the H-bomb. And it wasn't a test, it was a validation. They probably had several already made. And the satellite uh, test facility uh, was really nothing more than a thinly veiled uh, ICBM test facility. Because the difference between SpaceX launching Iridium satellites on Thursday or Friday out of Vandenberg and SpaceX nuking Tokyo is the angle that the ballistic missile leaves the Earth or leaves the pad. If you want to nuke Tokyo, you put a nuke on the Falcon 9 rocket and you... And it takes off at 38 degrees going west. If you want it to put 10 Iridium sat phone satellites in orbit, uh, you shoot it up at about 88 degrees, and those uh, satellites go into a polar orbit. That's the difference. So <clears throat> since the North Koreans don't need to test missiles anymore, they don't need the satellite facility. Of course, it's been for 20 years, it's been an official mask of theirs. That, uh, no, 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 we're, we're developing commercial satellite launch facilities. Yeah, that's our breakthrough business. No, seriously, we can't feed our people, but we're going we're gonna, to uh, make money hand over fist with satellite launches. We're going to be the world's epicenter for commercial satellite launching. They never even believed themselves. They, they didn't even sell it. They didn't make brochures. The Iranians do the same thing, by the way. The Iranians uh, say, oh, no, 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 we're doing peaceful satellite research because they know... And, and any sentient being who knows anything about missile testing knows that there is little difference between a rocket that will put a satellite in orbit and a rocket that, uh, because of, of, of the angle that you launch it and its payload, and a rocket that can be used as an intercontinental ballistic missile. It's just the angle of the launch and what's it carrying. And so uh, they're making waves in American media, and people are saying, well, look at that, they're denuclearizing. Those aren't nuclear facilities. And then, oh, by the way, remember the one that kicked this off uh, about, uh, about uh, five months ago when they imploded their nuclear test range? Well, A, they don't need it anymore, and B, they'll just tunnel back into it if they need it. And so they're in the midst of one of the greatest propaganda victories um, of, of North Korea's life. Um, at some point, the American administration is going to call them on this. And they're actually going to hold them down and say, what exactly do you think denuclearization means? And the North Koreans are going to tell them that it sure doesn't mean getting rid of their nuclear missiles and nuclear bombs. Um, back next hour, America exiting Afghanistan and Syria? Big question mark. LOL. Uh, we'll talk about that and more. The Dark Secret Place, hour number two, right after this, KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Oh!
Doug's secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until 11. It's a new three-hour deal, everybody. 8 p.m. to 11. So uh, dig, if you will, that picture. Uh, and NBC has a uh, there's a live sort of a, a weird slow motion pursuit going on. Uh, they're, they're not bumping the channel, but if uh, NBC, their mobile app and their website uh, has a pursuit going on in, in the McKinley area, right? it's like just just east of the 110 uh, in uh, the Vernon sort of region of Los Angeles. And so let's let's check in real quick exactly where we are. with some of that. And you should be seeing now the uh, the cross street Hooper and East 33rd. 33rd Street and Hooper Avenue. Suspect stopped there. Red Ford F-150, about 20 years old. There that you see in the picture is also the Stuff in the in the bed. It looks like he stole a landscaper's truck. Anyway, they're reporting it as a stolen vehicle, but the guy is not driving it like he stole it. He's driving it like he's late for turkey dinner or something, but not exactly, but with relatives he doesn't like. And and so there's gear in the back of it. And, uh, and, and I mean, it is an, it's an old, beat-up, maroon F-150. And he's actually stopping at stop signs. And then, here, and then uh, uh, he's doing turn signals, slowing down at speed bumps and things like that. Anyway, he's on Hooper. LAPD are doing that sort of pull-back thing. They're not right behind him. They're letting him, uh, letting him go, and he's of course there's five helicopters over him. So anyway, we'll if there's an update on the fires, uh, we'll get them to you. If there's an update on this pursuit or something wacky happens, uh, I'll chime in with it. But otherwise, uh, really, uh, kind of a boring pursuit. Um, <clears throat> all right. Well, the president said, and this was uh, no matter what uh, President Mattis says. Uh, this was a bit of a surprise when President Trump said it uh, a couple weeks ago, and it, it sounded like he was announcing policy at uh, at an address, uh, a, a new policy about the United States. And, and again, just so that you all know what page I'm on, you all know there's several thousand American troops on the ground in Syria, right? Um, uh, approximately from the uh, Tigris River to the east, where we're supporting these, uh, the Syrian Defense Forces, the, the Sunni Arabs, uh, anti-Assad Arabs, and the uh, Syrian Kurds, the, uh, the YPG. But now that ISIS are de facto defeated, we really don't have a purpose for these guys anymore, and we really don't know what to say. Uh, like what, form a democracy? Um, they're now turning their attention on the fact that Bashar Assad sucks. And that they want him out. And even though the United States has very successfully um, spent the last two years refocusing these guys on ISIS, now that ISIS is gone, uh, they kind of want us to back them as they make a move on Damascus. Problem is, uh, without us, they don't have the strength. They don't have the anti-tank weapons. uh, And so if they keep uh, making these noises like they want to start fighting the Russians and the whole thing, there might be a problem. Um, anyway, this is, here's here's President uh, Trump a, a couple weeks ago, uh, sort of off the cuff, making making these statements about Syria. We'll be coming out of Syria like very soon. We back Let up. The other... We're knocking the hell out of ISIS. We'll be coming out of Syria like very soon. 
Let the other people take care of it now. Very soon. Very soon, we're coming out. We're going to have 100 percent of the caliphate, as they call it, sometimes referred to as land, taking it all back quickly, quickly. Uh, but we're going to be coming out of there real soon. So there you go. That was, by the way, that was pre-Helsinki summit with, with Putin. Uh, and because of moves that the Russians are making, uh, evidently, whatever the president said to Putin, some of it had to do with the, the fact that the United States evidently is getting out of Syria. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I understand why we went in there, because we wanted the, the fight against ISIS in Syria, not, never mind Iraq, which was 95% Iraqi heavy lifting, and they did a very good job. But the fighting against ISIS in Syria was American special operations, Marine artillery, uh, some conventional Marines, Army Rangers, uh, etc., and then also leading these indigenous armies in two separate claws, one the Syrian Kurds, YPG, the others, the SDF, the Syrian Defense Forces, um, basically all under one umbrella, and they did well. They did well enough. Um, the use of air power against ISIS was an absolute textbook. It was right out of the schoolroom. There were no lawyers on the battlefield. There were, there were fewer cameras. So precision air power um, and pinpoint strikes, uh, Delta Force commando strikes against high-value targets, uh, it, it was an absolute textbook takedown of an insurgency group. It ultimately was ISIS' fault for organizing as an army. The uh, ISIS went from guys standing around Syria and Iraq to fully organized army, actually wearing uniforms. They didn't have the training or the doctrine uh, to actually fight a defensive war. Um, their initial uh, entry into the battlefield five years ago was stunning and shocking. They would have been cut off at the head except Assad had more and bigger fish to fry. And Assad outsourced the fighting of ISIS to his own Kurds, who are the guys who are now the YPG. And Assad had this ongoing deal with them for five years, which was, you take it, you keep it. In, in a post-Civil War Syria, I, I will owe you. If you are my eastern flank, if you fight for me, and after all the Kurds, no one will say this out loud, but the Kurds actually owed it to Assad and his father, Hafez Assad, because they uh, because the Assads are religious minorities, they're Alawites, and they were in charge. And part of their power was based on the other religious minorities' uh, appreciation for being protected and not being dominated by the majority Sunni Arab population of Syria. So the Kurds felt like they could deal with Assad. They could cut a deal with him, and, and they did. They fought ISIS. They fought whoever was in front of them. They fought the the uh, the rebels uh, who never fully uh, coalesced they never there was never any cohesion there was never such a thing as a single uh, rebel army uh, different militias fought for their own towns they never came together uh, well now it's all over but for the fighting only now the united states doesn't really have an idea for what to do in syria uh, and so though it seems precipitous to just cut and go uh, it would seem that the people on the ground that we have been supporting and defending and training and equipping, uh, now they don't want to stop now that ISIS is basically, in Syria, ISIS is smaller than Orange County. The, the territory that uh, where they're killing people is uh, on the southern Syrian-Jordanian border and is smaller than Orange County. And, and now the Syrian Arab army are fighting them 
Um, and uh, the United States, uh, uh, the real, actual, heavy lifting of fighting ISIS, probably the crescendo of it was about five months ago. Now we don't know what to do. And in all likelihood, because of moves that the Russians are making, uh, it, it would appear that the president, and this is reverse engineering what the Russians are doing on the ground now, now that it's been a week and a half since the, the Trump summit with Putin, it appears that Trump somehow gave a verbal agreement to Putin that the United States is going to be getting out because the people, the muscle that we have, they feel like that deal was made. And they're getting their information from somewhere, not from MSNBC, certainly not from Fox. But the people that we have been leading, the Sunni Arabs and the Kurds in Syria, they have gotten the word that we're leaving um, and that the bases that we're hardening right now in eastern Syria we're improving dirt runways and pouring concrete on them. We're doing all the things we do when we intend to stay somewhere for a long time, except that that's a bit deceptive because we did that in Iraq, and now we're out. Those are Iraqi bases now. Um, <clears throat> all right, so it, it appears that the, that ISIS and the American uh, expeditionary force to fight ISIS, completely different, completely separate from the, the uh, Iraq conflict, from Afghanistan, it's a standalone on its own, and it appears that the United States sent an expeditionary force to fight basically the Barbary pirates. If you know your history and you go back 200 years, go back, fight the Barbary pirates, defeat them, and now their members are in prison. They're heading back to Europe. The Europeans are trying to figure out now. They're trying to dust off their old uh, treason laws. We don't have that big of a deal because we never had that many people in ISIS. The Europeans have a far different deal. So now we are in the post-war period. Now, it's all over except for the actual leaving of Syria. When we come back, what are the Europeans going to do? <clears throat> They're having to dust off literally, in the case of Britain, literally ancient treason laws um, with uh, returning jihadists who think they can just get off a plane and rejoin life in Britain. That and more coming up. It is uh, The Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here until 11 p.m. on KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. Six forty more stimulating talk. The dark secret place. Brian sits in here until eleven p.m. And there were those, nineteen seventy-six. It said that these chaps to be put up on treason charges for putting the Queen on the, the cover of their uh, their first big album. But uh, the world uh, grew to love the Beatles, and the charges of treason uh, went away uh, rather quickly. Well, but they're talking treason these days in Britain now because, as uh, you recall me telling you about uh, three years ago, uh, in, in 2015, more young Britons joined ISIS than joined the British military. And, and I'm not salting the tip jar on this uh, and just only counting young British Muslims. No, people, more people from Britain joined ISIS than joined the British military. Now, granted, the British military don't exactly need, you know, 100,000 new bodies every single year like the U.S. military does. But regardless, still kind of shocking. And they don't condone rape. But. Yeah. Um, uh, they don't. Uh, they, they don't and that's not one of the recruiting uh, bennies <laughs> that, that they have yeah. for ISIS. Yeah, come for the beheading, stay for the rape. You know, the, the, the British actually uh, frown on that. In fact, you'll find it's illegal in Britain to behead or rape. 
Well, uh, now that a lot of these guys have been rolled up on the battlefield, many of them uh, actually freed from ISIS jails because at, at the at the end, uh, the end of ISIS really looks like the end of the Third Reich in a lot of ways, where the guns started to turn on each other. And what do you mean you're going west to surrender to the uh, to the Americans? No, no, you're going east to fight these Slavs, to fight these Mongols. Are you kidding me? Um, so the Europeans wound up being the least trusted ISIS members. And a lot of ISIS members said, we never really did trust them because a lot of them um, claimed to not have their EU passports. They claimed to destroy it at the Turkish border uh, as a symbol of their, uh, their commitment to the caliphate. But as it turns out, a Belgian is going to be a Belgian. He might go do some jihad, but uh, a lot of these European uh, caliphate members who still had EU passports would not give them up because they always wanted that option of crossing over the border in Turkey, getting on a plane, and re-entering the EU and saying, me? What do you mean? I was studying archaeology. What are you talking about? I wasn't in ISIS. That's why there's there were two brands of ISIS for the last five years. There were the guys who wore those long camouflage dishdashes with those gigantic goat herder beards and their big wacky smiles and their full faces on the video because they did not give a F if you got them on video. In fact, they were proud of the stuff they were doing on video. The guys in Mosul that were tossing gay people off of buildings, they did it without masks. Beheading uh, Iraqi soldiers, the rest of it, they did it without masks. Meanwhile, what do you remember? You remember those Americans beheaded by a guy with a London East End accent like he was from the cutting room floor of Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and he had a mask on. And the other guys had masks on. And the, there was a group of five Britons who wound up being called the Beatles, even though there were only four Beatles. But the five guys always appeared with full balaclavas, ski masks on. They never showed their identity. That doesn't exactly show a huge level of commitment now, does it? However, now they're in custody. And the British were all about extraditing him here because they conspired to uh, kill an American citizen. And if you do that in Tierra del Fuego or Finland or Greenland, if you conspire to kill an American citizen, you are subject to American law. We can get our hands on you right when you, right when you think we're not going to get you if we can grab you, we bring you back to the, to the United States with the full fury and legal power um, of American law and a, the blessing of the United Nations, by the way. Well, so now the British are kind of balking at sending these guys to the U.S. I mean, to the U.S. because why? Well, because the federal government still has a death penalty. It's not likely these guys might <clears throat> get something uh, that, that, that might uh, wind up as death. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed probably... As someday, if he is in an American uh, uh, U.S. District Court for Southern uh, New York uh, and he's found guilty, he, you know, of course, he could be found innocent. And he could walk right out the front door and go back to North Carolina A&T and finish his, uh, his master's. Um, or he could be found guilty and sentenced to death. We don't know. But meanwhile, these British citizens who are not in American custody, the British are wondering, well, what do we do with them and what do we do with the rest of these dudes? Um, ancient treason laws should be updated so British terror recruits and jihadists returning from war zones can be prosecuted. This is a uh, uh, nonpartisan cross-party group of members of parliament uh, have said. A new report calling for the legal changes, whose authors include the conservative chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat, 
and Labor MP Khalid Mahmoud were backed by former conservative Home Secretary Amber Rudd. Gathering enough evidence to prosecute those who join groups like Islamic State uh, abroad is notoriously difficult, and the report um, argues that a new offense would allow suitable ground on which to jail captured jihadists. In other words, loosening the extremely tight treason criteria. Uh, it, it highlights the cases of Alex, Alexander Koti and El Shafi El Sheikh, who are allegedly part of the brutal Islamic State cell called the Beatles, and says they can be jailed with the updated new law. Here's the thing: in the uh, coming up on 17 years of the war on terror, uh, we've had John Walker Lind early on. We've had Adam uh, Gadon from Orange County, the talking head for the Taliban. Um, of, of the various people who have died on the battlefield, or we picked up, none of them have been charged with treason. John Walker Lind clearly should have been tried for treason. He took up arms against an enemy of the United States, pardon me, in support of an enemy of the United States, but he was not. And it says right on your passport on page four what, what you need to do to lose your citizenship. Treason's a different deal. There's no doubt that that uh, Anwar Al-Awlaki from the San Diego imam was a traitor to the United States. The Obama administration avoided that by just droning him. He got a Hellfire missile up his butt. Okay, at the end of the day, it's a death sentence anyway. So six of one, half dozen of another. But in my book, the guy was still a U.S. citizen. Even though he was a bastard and a traitor, at least pull his citizenship while the missile's in flight. Do something. But we have not even brought up the, the charge treason. The British are dealing with it because uh, they, they take it very personal. Back right after this, it is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until 11 p.m. On the Dark Secret Place, KFI M640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It is Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here until 11 p.m. And I know y'all want me to let this song just go. Can't do it. Um, well, the pursuit is over. <laughs> uh Red Ford F-150, uh, the law wins, <clears throat> scoff laws lose. I didn't catch Michael Chappé. Where did our slow speed pursuit uh, uh, end? It, it seemed like it Hooper was... Hooper and 12th Street, downtown L.A. Yeah, it's, it's like south of the 10, south of Jefferson, and it was a woman. Yeah, she <clears throat> was cornered, and they literally had to break the both the uh, passenger and driver's side windows, and, uh, and, and they hauled her out. You stopped. Right. Of your own volition. They block you in. Where are you going? And then you don't get out? You don't comply? You, now, now, Now's the line that you draw? Maybe they'll just go away after I finish my yeah. cigarette. I bet uh, when I'm done hotboxing, they'll be so <laughs> bored, um, you know, they'll all run to Dunkin' Donuts. They'll find or something whatever. else to do. Yeah, so one of the more... I give I give this out of a 10, out of a, out of a L.A. Pursuit-ometer, this is not even a 2. No. Uh, wrong vehicle, uh, F-150, a trashy vehicle, not even being driven like you stole it, obeying all applicable traffic laws, yet we were told it was stolen. And then, I don't want to stereotype, but I'm just saying, put a desperate guy behind the wheel. You got a chase. You got an L.A. chase. We don't need We don't need more of those. Yeah. And speaking of that, by, by the way, since it's the dark secret place that we do from time to time talk about Second Amendment issues, law enforcement, use of force, et cetera, um, the uh, a week ago was the domestic dispute that wound up with a, a 29-year-old man shooting his grandmother seven times and then taking off uh, in her car with his girlfriend. It winds up at Trader Joe's. 
Uh, tragically, police were turning fire because customarily when you're shot at, police are authorized to shoot back to uh, to defend their own lives and the lives of in- innocent uh, citizens. Um, and so we saw something really unusual that, that really m- maybe marks the new Chief Moore uh, regime. And that was the release of the body cam and dash cam video within, let's see, it was done Tuesday morning, I believe. And the, the, the incident was uh, Saturday afternoon, approximately 2 p.m. Uh, in the Silver Lake area. We knew a little more on Sunday. Um, Tuesday, they actually put body and dash cam video up, uh, and, and I can see the reason why, and, and it was because it, it showed, even to, uh, to a neophyte, that LAPD were dealing with a guy who, in the dash cam video, the guy is actually, he actually blows out the back window of his car. He's, he's doing the TV thing, and he's driving down Hyperion, a, Ro- a Rowena, I mean, and he's shooting out his own back window, shooting at cops. There's like a mist, but that mist is glass. So he's shooting at LAPD as they're behind him. <clears throat> the officers on their body cam, uh, the partner in the passenger seat uh, has her weapon out. She's ready to go. Uh, the, the the driver is uh, giving updates. And then all of a sudden, the guy, either he was distracted or something, but on Hyperion at a high rate of speed, right in front of Trader Joe's, he loses control of the vehicle, hits a phone pole or power pole, whatever, and another vehicle, uh, LAPD pull up, but not all the way. There's there's an opportunity, though it's not it, it's not SOP. Uh, it, it's generally not done. Cops, uh, unless something extraordinary is happening, cops don't drive up to the driver's side door and pin it closed because now you're in a four-foot gunfight. And this guy has already shown that he has a weapon and he is using it liberally. And a woman was in the car. Yeah. There's an innocent citizen in there. The guy's already attempted the murder of his own grandma. So you don't pin his driver's side door with your car uh, and just take one in the face. What about bumping a little harder than that? I, I, uh, you can, you can almost see in the dash cam video that the driver, the the LAPD guy behind the wheel, you, you could tell he was almost considering that. But then, then you can see because I've watched that video now a million times, literally a million times, and you can see activity from the driver. You can see unbuckling activity, the the motion he's going through turning a little bit to his right, uh, then unbuckling. He's going to get out. And so LAPD, the primary unit, stops. The guy gets out blazing. He runs into a Trader Joe's. And when he gets in the Trader Joe's, he goes behind a fruit stand. And I know that the one that I go to right now, peaches are, peaches are seasonal. Um, and he goes behind a fruit stand and starts shooting back out. Uh, the officers, the two body cam videos, the, uh, the remarkable, the notable thing about the body cam video uh, is that the passenger, uh, the partner who gets out, um, you can see in her body cam uh, video, she's very disciplined in her fire. She's going bang, 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 bang. Uh, and and her range fan, her left and right limit, it ends as he runs to her left and and now enters the door. She ceases fire. Also with the, the driver. I mean, I'm, I was really impressed because these cops saw the background and they had a clear background. As the guy was running left, then he goes into a store, into a sliding door of a store, and they cease fire. They they had if you're if you have seen that video, folks, they have way more bullets left. Okay, um, but they ceased fire, and then he goes in there and starts shooting back out. 
So they take cover. At the press conference, this part of the video was not ready uh, for, for Chief Moore. He was a little pissed at his video crew on this one. But the next body cam video you see are the cops behind a cinder block wall, apparently across the street on Hyperion from the uh, Trader Joe's, and rounds are impacting around them. The unmistakable sound of rounds whizzing by or hitting cinder blocks and wood is happening. So, so accurate fire is coming back from this guy. Um, and the officers returned fire, and this is when the assistant manager was killed. Um, so I, uh, I'm, st- I'm still sort of processing the politics of it, uh, but I would say this. <clears throat> b- because it's a week later and you're really not hearing about it in the, in the news, it, it would appear that LAPD did the right thing because they were in between the devil and the deep blue sea. You know, they, their job is to enforce the law and to stop psychotic, gun-wielding a-holes. And if, if uh, they get to shoot back when the guy is shooting at citizens. And so, unfortunately, a civilian uh, got in the crossfire and was felled and killed by an LAPD bullet. Um, how many uh, other people, uh, you know, were saved? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. The guy went into a prolonged... Uh, negotiation. He was wounded, um, but there's absolute. And then he, as you recall, he asked for handcuffs to be thrown in, and he cuffed himself, or had someone cuff him, and he came out with his hands over his head. Uh, but th- it's unfortunate. There's no good answer. Uh, this is just the way it is, and I'm I'm here to tell you that you have to empower your police to to do this because we live in a town where people shoot at each other and at us, and they shoot at cops. And uh, somebody has to be policing that, and that would be the police. Uh, and then the other thing to consider is that you, you have uh, one of several officers, uh, and I don't know that LAPD is going to actually I, – I think, I think by law in California, I believe they have to actually ballistically match the weapon uh, because it's a homicide, and it's an officer-involved homicide. So I think that they, re- they actually do have to match the bullet to the weapon – so they'll collect the weapons of, uh, that were all fired by the officers, and they will know who fired the fatal bullet. Will they tell that officer? I mean, I'm here to tell you um, that nothing weighs on the conscience like unnecessary death. So that's when that's why I always rail against people in L.A. that force police to commit their they commit suicide by making cops shoot them. That's the most dirtbaggy, cowardly thing you can possibly do. Um, and so that that officer, not identified. Whoever it is, uh, if they find out that they killed someone, an uh, innocent bystander, that's on them for the rest of their life. But that's, the, that's not an easy thing. It's a horrible thing. It's only one of two, right? There's only I, I think a 50-50. So, yeah. so if you're those officers, you want to know. Yeah, and they, and like I, I say, think. I think by law, I think they have to match the weapon to the round. And at that point, do they have to tell the officer? I think they have to. And so that's uh, – and, and besides, you would assume it, it was you anyway if, if it's the two of you. Um, and and I'm a, I I I think that the officer probably knows, but it's a you know it, it's it, don't look at that event and say oh there's LAPD effing up again. No, believe me, those officers showed amazing restraint, excellent tactical shooting, and then something horrible happened, almost beyond their control, and they have to live with it for the rest of their lives. And you know, then uh, back in a second, so there's a couple uh, local community a holes who. Who can't shut their a-hole. On, on a related issue, I'm still waiting for you to uh, chime in on the uh, Ninth Circuit Court decision on open carry. I know, yeah, we'll I w- see. I want to hear. I, I, I can imagine people in California are very antsy about this. I want straw freedom in Santa Barbara and open carry. <laughs> I had a metal straw uh, from Whole Foods across the street. <laughs> and I was like, how do they wash these? 
Uh, it is uh, the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits back right after this. KFI M640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. Damn, that was a long promo. Did I really do that? Dark Secret Place. KFI M640. More stimulating talk. I usually do those sort of with the understanding that production guy John's going to edit them down. Uh, it is a dark secret place. And yes, the mystery from uh, 1942. I'll tell you about that uh, next hour. It's a fascinating story. You probably have never heard it uh, ever before. <clears throat> um, yeah, so uh, I sort of buried the lead. So here's the deal. Um, after World War II, the world's five uh, uh, English-speaking nations that are not India uh, formed together what's called the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing uh, System. This was the United Kingdom, uh, the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Because at the end of World War II, all five of uh, those countries, us and the Commonwealth, had excellent intelligence gathering uh, facilities. The Australians are a, a, a very, very big player, by the way. They punch way above their weight in intelligence gathering. The Australian... Uh, electronic, their equivalent of the NSA is really amazing. And it's like, it's like five blokes, right? It's, it's really amazing. And what the five eyes are is a, a system of shared intelligence with the assumption, and a pretty damn good assumption, uh, assumption in 1945, that England and the United States would never go to war again. Canada and the U.S. would never go to war. New Zealand and Australia would never go to war. That those five nations will go through history as, uh, as brothers and or cousins. And therefore, there's no arguments for not sharing uh, major bits of intelligence. And so, uh, a source on, in, from, the, uh, from Australia, from within the Australian defense establishment, has said that um, the gathering and finalizing of targets in Iran is happening right now, and it's being done at a, uh, with a bit of, uh, of uh, hustle, to it because it would appear that the United States either wants to or either is going to strike Iranian nuclear targets sometime in late August or wants the Iranians to believe that we are ready to strike Iranian nuclear targets in late August. And after all, the best way to get Kim Jong-un or the Supreme Council of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the, the Skiri, the people who actually run the country, not President Rouhani, the way to get the Iranians to really think we really are going to strike them is to prepare as if you're going to strike them. Because that is, you know, ultimately, even though we're kind of screwing up the negotiations with the North Koreans, the bottom line is the North Koreans for the past uh, year have seen a very aggressive American uh, practiced air assault almost every single night for the past year. B-52s, B-2s, B-1Bs um, out of Guam have been flying these missions uh, where uh, they go to a launch point of strike missiles, and then they turn away over Japan, fly back to Guam. So very clearly, the United States has spent the last uh, nine months, it sort of ended a few months ago after Singapore, practicing to strike North Korea. Now, were we really intending on striking North Korea? Well, we don't know. But if, you're, if you even have the notion, you better start practicing as if it's a real deal. Well, the effect this had in North Korea was that their air defense was on high alert every single night for a year. For for a year, they were seeing B-2s take off from Guam, B-52s, whatever, 
and they were uh, entering the Sea of Japan and then turning back. They were flying over the DMZ and then turning back. But every single time it happened, the North Koreans had to treat it as if it was the real deal. And this this took their air defense branch of their military almost to the breaking point because the gear they had to use, the radar, uh, doing uh, uh, you know function checks on the missiles, uh, getting aircraft up in the air, the whole thing, they treated every one of those as if it really was the real attack because you have to, right? And this put enormous pressure on the North Koreans. You haven't heard this anywhere in the American media, but this is what happened over the past year. Well, so now, and by the way, what was the result? Well, no matter what you think his motive was, Kim Jong-un did wind up in Singapore meeting with Trump. And then Trump called the dogs off. So now a source, a five-eye source in Australia is saying that the United States is about to turn up the heat on the Iranians. And so we'll see. How will we see? Well, if, um, if you start hearing, and you'll hear it on my Twitter feed, Dark Secret Place, or on the, my, my uh, other podcast uh, at connectpal.com, what you'll see next is if American B-52s or B-2s displace from Guam to Diego Garcia, they will effectively do the same thing and begin flying simulated strike packages into Iran. They will turn short of Iran in international airspace, you know, 50 miles short of Iran, 100 miles short of Iran, and they'll turn back to Diego Garcia, which is the American least British-owned island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And this will have the same effect on the Iranians. The Iranians have different ways to strike back, though. They can close the, the uh, Straits of Hormuz, the Persian Gulf, uh, with zodiacs and boats and things like that. But so anyway, this this is a leak, either because we wanted it to leak out of the Australians to get the Iranians' attention, or because it really was leaked because it really is real. So um, I don't have. There's one of two possibilities. It was intentionally leaked uh, so that the Iranians start paying attention uh, because it really is. Uh, a plan, uh, but then again, uh, a plan has to look, uh, even a practice, even a, even a threat has to look genuine for it to mean anything. So that is what's going on, uh, and that is what you know. All right, when we come back, the F-15 versus the F-22, uh, which one will be flying longer? Uh, the, the We're running out of letters. Boeing is up to X. The F-15X Super Eagle uh, is uh, your your next uh, super cheap, not quite stealthy fighter. Also, militarized drones coming to a neighborhood near you and a naval mystery. Next hour, hour number three of the Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here until 11 p.m. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Hour number three, because we now go from 8 to 11, uh, starting at 8 o'clock. So uh, there you go. Same same lovely podcast, though, just a little longer. Uh, later on this hour, a naval mystery from 1942, a, a fascinating story that perhaps you probably have never heard. Um, and you know why? Because it's a mystery and it hasn't been solved. Also coming up, a drone warfare update. It's, uh, it is expanding. And why shouldn't it? Uh, and I don't mean drone warfare like American style with million dollar and $10 million drones. Uh, no, I mean like the little 60 and $80 drones that you can get at Target or Fry's or on Amazon or whatever, and weaponize. So possibly coming soon to a neighborhood near you. Um, well, the F-15 is uh, coming up on uh, coming up on 50 years uh, very, very soon, uh, believe it or not. It uh, first flew in uh, 1975, 
Um, and it is uh, it, at the twilight of its career in the U.S. Air Force. So it is still, uh, in many cases, the staple of uh, Air National Guard and U.S. Air Force fighter squadrons. There are, there are several Air National Guard squadrons flying F-22s, and the F-22 is the fighter standard of the uh, U.S. Air Force. But for other missions besides air superiority, which is still a key F-15 mission, but for its uh, second life, the F-15 became the Strike Eagle, the F-15E, and it became <clears throat> the, uh, the premier uh, attack platform in the U.S. Air Force. It was employed in Desert Storm. Uh, in Iraqi freedom, in Afghanistan. The F-15E uh, is a dedicated two-seat F-15 with a weapon system operator in the back and has become the uh, the premier air attack platform in the U.S. Air Force and uh, and other air forces that fly it. Um, but uh, it does, is there a replacement on the horizon? Well, the F-35 might be. but They're already discovering that the F-35 cannot do some functions that the F-15 could. One of the main things the F-15 can do is carry a lot of stuff. As a air-to-air fighter, it can carry a lot of missiles in its original configuration, but as a attack bomber, the F-15E, it can carry a lot of stuff. And so uh, for air forces in the world that don't want to quite go full fifth-generation stealth fighter, but they still want capable air-to-air fighters, the F-15, extremely modified, is uh, still a viable choice. And this was proven by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's conversion of all their F-15s and then buying some new ones to the new F-15SA standard, uh, the F-15 Saudi Arabia standard. The F-15SA um, it has uh, actually uh, different, different internal forms and guts and the whole thing. But the main thing is it can carry more weapons. It has what's called an all-glass cockpit. In other words, no round gauges or needles or anything like that. Uh, it has uh, far better targeting, far better situational awareness, and it also has data links where it can trade all of its data with the aircraft uh, to its left and right or up and down. Well, so this has been so successful, and you can see the Saudi F-15 SAs flying out of uh, Palmdale all the time. They have red wings, and they're, uh, they're being delivered to Saudi Arabia now. <clears throat> uh, this has been so successful that Boeing has gone ahead and uh, pitched the U.S. Air Force, and the U.S. Air Force is interested in this, and a final generation F-15 called the F-15X. And the F-15X will actually have uh, different radar, because here's the main drawback with the F-15s. They are not stealthy. They still require active jamming, as it's called. That is transmitting energy to befuddle enemy uh, uh, sensors, whether it's radar or something else. Uh, Radar-absorbing coatings can take care of some of that, but there's just no way to take an F-15 and make it stealthy. I mean, it's a a flying barn. They are huge. If you've ever seen an F-15 at an air show and then you you see it fly, then you see it uh, in, in static where you can walk up to it, they're huge. They are really, really, really big. Well, the F-15X will have different internal components, different uh, coatings, radar-absorbing coatings, uh, et cetera. But the main thing it will have will be an absolute arsenal of air-to-air weapons. It's going to be a missile-carrying truck. And whereas the F-15 normally carries two missiles uh, on uh, the pylons on the wings, and you can add pylons, you can have two pylons in each wing. Uh, so theoretically, the Saudis can have 
eight missiles on the wings, and they can have four stuck to the fuselage. Well, the F-15X is going to stick a missile absolutely everywhere there's a flat surface on the F-15. So an F-15X fully loaded for air superiority will take off with uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 air-to-air missiles. So in other words, a single F-15X in the Korean Air Force, in the South Korean Air Force, can take off with a full load of missiles, and it will have more missiles than the North Koreans have MiG-29s. So literally one F-15X could shoot down every MiG-29, every frontline fighter in the North Korean Air Force with just one load of missiles. Uh, uh, The cost per plane, Boeing hasn't worked that out yet, but if Boeing bears the cost of this, which is just another accounting way of saying that we do, um, then the U.S. Air Force might be interested because uh, the F-22, and people keep saying this over and over and over, the F-22 production line is not going to be started up again. It's not going to be restarted. The reason you can continue modifying the F-15 fuselage, the F-15 aircraft, is because McDonnell Douglas never shut it down. They were bought by Boeing. Boeing never shut it down. The F-15 has not stopped production since 1975. So you can continue modifying it. The F-22, we made a bunch of them, and then 10 years ago, we stopped making them. And restarting that program would cost almost as much as designing a new fighter from the ground up, like the British are about to do. With uh, The British uh, can't, uh, can't live without their own indigenously created uh, fighters, so they just released uh, imagery and a mock-up of a fighter that looks amazingly like an F-22, but it's British and it's called the Tempest. Well, <clears throat> financially, you can't argue with a plane that's still in production. The F-15 is still in production, so you modify it, and in all likelihood, the F-15 is going to fly uh, approximately until the year 2040, and that's just in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, by the way, the B-52 is uh, supposed to fly uh, in one version or another till till 2030 or possibly 2050. So quite literally, the plane's going to be just under 100 years old when it's finally flown to Arizona. All right, so Dark Secret Place back in a minute with your drone warfare update. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place, Brian Suits. In here until uh, 11 o'clock. Our new hours, by the way, 8 p.m. to 11. So uh, please enjoy. Coming up uh, in the next break, a naval mystery. The, uh, the, the mystery of the missing man, March of 1942. A man overboard mystery that has not been solved to this day. Uh, drone wars. The, the first commercially available drones that were weaponized happened in Syria and Iraq. And they, they happened because the men of ISIS, who don't have an air force, um, did have money and had access to European markets, uh, and for that matter, markets in Turkey. And so commercial drones, um, usually under about $200, were uh, purchased in Turkey off the, uh, off the market, just in toy stores or whatever in Turkey, brought into Syria, and then the the uh, simple engineering matter of adapting the usual HD camera hookup underneath the drone to do something as simple as release a grenade was actually fairly simple. Um, if you if you don't know how this works, um, I've got a couple drones with HD cameras on them or with mounts where you can mount a little GoPro camera on them. 
and the uh, drone communicates uh, by direct Wi-Fi to your to an app on your smartphone, where you can uh, use the GoPro camera or the built-in camera uh, as a uh, sort of a virtual piloting, uh, you know, cockpit where you can put the camera forward and you can fly the drone around as if you're sitting there on the drone, but you're looking at the app on your phone. It's actually a lot of fun. And that's how they do those drone races, um, like in Balboa park and things like that. Anyway, some of these drones can carry, uh, you know, up to, up to two and a half or three pounds. And some of the really significant ones, the ones that are used for actual filmmaking uh, or commercial production, uh, can can wield up to seven or eight pounds. And so <clears throat> what was done uh, by ISIS in Syria was a simple matter of replacing uh, the, the camera mount underneath with, with uh, some sort of mechanical release. Or, uh, in many cases, leaving the camera and using that as the guidance system and then including a mechanical release. Because, as you recall, nothing happened in ISIS world unless they had video of it. And so, starting about five years ago, you began seeing these pretty amazingly cinematic HD drone shots of a drone undetected at about 1,000 feet. Um, uh, coming over a Syrian army position or an Iraqi army position, and then it would lower in place. It would lower a couple hundred feet, and when it seemed to be stable and the the camera seemed fixed over one particular area, like a bunch of fuel or ammunition or whatever, it the uh, the drone would drop a adapted forty millimeter grenade that had <clears throat> a thin, for instance, like a tissue paper roll. Uh, for a tail fin, something really, really crude, but it oriented and stabilized the projectile in flight. So it would generally fly straight down and it would blow up on impact. And they did this for hundreds of times before they finally got a success. They finally got a spectacular success in the form of a exploding Syrian ammo dump. And, uh, you know, it, it, it looked like they had mastered drone warfare. And so they were immediately copied. They were copied in Yemen by the Houthis. Uh, they were copied by ISIS in Iraq. Uh, they were copied by ISIS-inspired terrorists in Libya. But the guys in Syria were the originators of it and really the masters of the craft. So some of them began uh, putting tutorials up on YouTube or other uh, other sort of dark web or or even slightly light regular web, Reddit and 4chan, started putting how-to videos on how to modify common battlefield munitions like 40-millimeter grenades um, into an aerial drop um, impact weapon, and furthermore, how to modify a commercially available drone, something that you can get off of Amazon and ship to Turkey or whatever, uh, into a killing machine. Now, the, the range of these drones... Um, generally is not really more than a mile. If it goes more than a mile, then it's going off of GPS, uh, and at which point you have to know the precise location of where the bad guy is, and then you you drop the uh, the munition. Well, so this was um, successful as a propaganda play in Syria, but really not much more. It was an annoyance 
Uh, as the Iraqi army overran Mosul about a year ago, the guys uh, there in, in Mosul, the ISIS guys, they had several years to prepare for this. They had an arsenal of hundreds of uh, cheap little drones, the ones that you get for less than 80 bucks at Target, or you can get them on Alibaba or Amazon. And they had nothing but time to modify them and also to teach their men how to utilize them. So the Iraqis uh, had a lot of men wounded, a few even killed, but it was really more of an annoyance than anything else. But it did produce some pretty spectacular video of, for ISIS. You got this uh, video of Iraqi soldiers running around uh, after the first one uh, hit or when they heard it overhead. So anyway, fast forward now. Um, in Israel, the uh, Hamas terrorists have been using kites and et cetera uh, to uh, start forest fires have been using drones, but the Israeli authorities have not been releasing this to the media. Uh, well, the, the jig is up because now the Egyptians are seizing huge shipments of cheap drones um, at the Egyptian Hamas, Egyptian Gaza crossing point. Uh, and so now Gaza have, have guys in basements uh, doing nothing but making drone bombs. So the drone is now the uh, asymmetric uh, weapon of the little guy. Uh, the next step, of course, is somebody in the U.S. is going to do this. Uh, you know it because it's all over the web. It's easy to do, and someone else is already doing it. So anyway, that's your drone warfare update. It's cheap. Uh, is it effective? Mm, uh, its goal is to terrorize. So is it effective? Yes, it is. Is it going to win a war? No. All right, when we come back, a naval mystery from 1942. The Dark Secret Place continues right after this. Brian sits in here till midnight, KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits here with a military mystery. This is one of the most baffling mysteries in U.S. Navy history. And that, that intentionally rhymes, by the way. The date is 27 March 1942. It is five months after Pearl Harbor, approximately five months after Pearl Harbor. The United States is rushing into war in Europe as well as in Asia, where we're already engaged with the Japanese Navy. But meanwhile, in the Atlantic, the uh, U.S. Navy and U.S. Coast Guard are frantically now uh, entering a hot war with German U-boats, which are uh, the scourge of the East Coast, literally uh, in sight of Long Island uh, and South Carolina. Um Blowing up transport ships, uh, uh, merchant ships, oil tankers, uh, ships just leaving Charleston Harbor, just leaving New York Harbor, Boston Harbor. The U-boat scourge and the, uh, the, the men of the U-boats, the crews of the U-boats are, are entering a new golden age because this new foe, which with, with little or no combat experience, uh, is about to enter the, the war and the war is going to depend on getting men and material over to England. And <clears throat> so the U.S. Navy stretched very thin in the, in the Atlantic. But the U.S. Navy sends a task force to Scapa Flow, the Royal Navy's main anchorage in the north of the, uh, of, uh, the U.K. Uh, the U.S. Navy sends a 13-ship task force, puny by comparison to the task forces uh, that would uh, form the backbone of the U.S. Navy in the Pacific or a task force uh, often had hundreds of ships. Uh, but this 13-ship task force was led by the USS Washington, uh, one of our more modern battleships with 16-inch guns, 
Also, the USS Wasp aircraft carrier, CV-7, uh, sister ship to the Hornet and uh, the Enterprise. So there was some naval aviation for anti-submarine duties, etc., as well as covering the convoy. Uh, the USS Tuscaloosa was a cruiser in the uh, task force, and then there were various destroyers and anti-submarine ships, etc. So it is March in the North Atlantic, and the weather's horrible. It is uh, morning. It's mid-morning on March 27, 1942. It is snowing into the ocean. It is cold enough to freeze salt water. Salt water is splashing over the bow uh, of all of the ships, uh, including the aircraft carrier. The ships are becoming encrusted with frozen salt water. It's, it is actually that cold that the seawater is freezing on the ships, on the steel decks of the ships. There are watches on all the ships, men uh, in larger crews than normal, manning the railings as well as shipping ice away. Uh, because if a ship gets too heavy under the weight of ice, it literally can disappear at the next trough it goes down into. That was a very common thing in the so-called Murmansk run later on in the war when supplies were sent to Russia via the uh, the UK uh, and the convoys would speed past German-occupied Norway to make it to Murmansk, Russia. And in doing so, so they would go north of the Arctic Circle and sometimes get so weighted down by ice that they would just disappear. So uh, those were the conditions that this 13-ship U.S. Navy flotilla uh, were in. <clears throat> Visibility was virtually uh, nil. Uh, they could see other ships in the flotilla, but really couldn't see more than a mile or two away. They were on high alert for, for uh, submarines, for U-boats, obviously, and making uh, the maximum speed they could in the weather conditions that persisted. The officer of the of the watch um, on the Washington's bridge was Lieutenant Junior Grade William Fargo. He was the uh, the OD, the officer, the OOD, the officer of the deck. And at ten thirty one a.m., March twenty seventh, nineteen forty two, the call was made: man overboard. Somebody on the Washington saw a man overboard go overboard. The call quickly made it up to the bridge, and because of strict radio silence. Obviously, uh, a, a, a U.S. Navy task force crossing the North Atlantic doesn't want the Germans to fix them uh, by, uh, by direction, by using radio. So strict radio silence was enforced. That includes life or death situations like man overboard. Uh, so flags, lights, or even whistles and horns, ship's horns, were used to communicate. In, in this case, the man overboard signal was given from the USS Washington, and it was heard by the other ships in the task force that confirmed um, the USS Tuscaloosa was in trail behind the Washington. And a bow lookout on the Tuscaloosa signaled that there was a man in the water directly ahead of them. And the Tuscaloosa had to make maneuvers to avoid hitting and running down the individual, who evidently was the overboard individual. Uh, two destroyers that were behind the Tuscaloosa uh, began making their way into the wake of the Tuscaloosa to look for the man. <clears throat> One lookout on the cruiser of the Tuscaloosa said that the man was struggling for a life ring. Now, keep in mind the water temperature um, in the North Atlantic, even in the middle of the summer, uh, is still hovering around 50 degrees or lower. Uh, it's what they call 15-minute water. That if you, if you don't have some kind of survival suit on, you're not going to survive 15 minutes. So the two destroyers make their way 
can't see the man. Um, and witnesses on the destroyers uh, say that they can see someone flailing behind them, but the destroyers are not under orders to do a 180 and go back and attempt to recover the man. Lookouts now on the USS uh, Wasp, the aircraft carrier, uh, at the trail end of the convoy now are reporting that the man is seen, but he is now face down in the water. So the, uh, the ships continue on because they're not going to turn around 13 ships in U-boat infested water for one man overboard. However, what they can do is at least find out who the hell it was. So all the ships, including the most likely ship that the man overboard came from, the USS Washington, the lead ship, the battleship, uh, they all do a, uh, uh, a muster. They all do a general quarters muster where every man goes to his battle station. Um, there were escort ships ahead of the Washington. Uh, I mean, the Washington was not in the lead. There were some escort ships ahead of it. So those ships do the same thing. Everyone goes to general quarters, to battle stations, and at their battle stations, everybody gets counted. So this includes the ships even behind the Washington at this point. So everybody gets counted, and everyone <clears throat> comes up fully accounted for. The USS Wasp has over 3,000 men on it. They can account for all of them. The Tuscaloosa, the cruiser, uh, has nearly 1,900 men on it. They can account for every single one of them. The escorts ahead of the Washington uh, have several hundred men. They can account for all of them. The USS Washington comes back, and they're missing two men. So they recount. They've only seen one man overboard, but they're missing two men. So the order is given. Everyone, back to your workstation. We're going to recount. This time, officers, you're going to call out names, and you're going to get an answer from absolutely everybody. This may take an hour, but we are going to figure out who is missing. What happened next may surprise you. Uh, we'll be back right after this. It is a dark secret place, a naval mystery from 1942 when we come back. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here. One last time, solving a uh, naval mystery from 1942, 27 March 1942, a 13-ship U.S. Navy convoy in the North Atlantic, um, the battleship Washington, the aircraft carrier USS Wasp and others are speeding as fast as they can go uh, to Scapa Flow, Scotland, where they're going to begin European operations for World War II. The call is made at 1031 in the morning. There's a man overboard. The ships maneuver around. The man is seen. By lookouts on various ships, the last ship that spotted the man saw the man face down in the water, and the task force was not turned around to recover his body because it was wartime. They had to keep going. So what they can do is uh, at least muster and account for who it is that's missing. So the ships do one count. Every ship comes up 100% except for one, the battleship uh, Washington. Now, the, the commander of the task force, Admiral John D. Wilcox, um, uh, uh, probably one of the most mortal sins, or rather a mortal sin of a commander, is to lose accountability of their men. Uh, the other one would be to lose a ship because of incompetence uh, or uh, tactical uh, laziness or, or whatever. So they're not even in combat yet. They're in a combat zone, but they haven't even heard a shot fired in anger, and there's a man missing. So surely they can accomplish this easy task. Well, the first count comes up on the USS Washington, and they're too short. So, and this this took nearly 45 minutes to come up with that count. 
So they're going to recount. And this time the officers are ordered in their workstations to uh, to physically call out the name of each man and have that man report back in his own voice. So this is going to take about another 45 minutes, maybe an hour. But they need to get this report to the old man, to the admiral, uh, because, uh, you know, they, they have to uh, account for the man or come up with a reason why. So the count is done. And this is the captain's job of the USS Washington. The task force commander, he's commander of all 13 ships. This is not his gig. So the captain orders... All the officers, call out your men's names in your different divisions, in engineering, uh, in weapons, you know, everything. So they, they go about doing this, and this time they don't come out two men short. Now they're only one man short. And so they report up to the captain of the USS Washington, and they say, yep, we, uh, we have a count. We are short one man. We cannot account for one man. Do you want us to count again? The captain of the uh, Washington the, uh, the battleship, Captain Benson, says, nope, that'll do it. We're not going to, you know, we're in a combat zone. We can't, we can't sit here uh, counting noses all day long. We've done it twice. Uh, we've corrected our mistake. We're up, we're down to one man missing. Okay, I'm going to send this report down to the old man. The, uh, <clears throat> the muster is written down, uh, and it's sent down by a Marine sentry. There's a Marine on the bridge, and there's a Marine at the Admiral's door, at the Admiral's stateroom. Uh, the uh, notification is given to the Marine on the bridge. He goes down to the uh, to the task force commander's stateroom and gives it to the Marine sentry guarding the stateroom. The Marine sentry knocks on the door. There's no answer. He knocks on the door again. There's no answer a second time. The Marine sentry calls for Admiral Wilcox. There's no answer. The Marine sentry enters Admiral John D. Wilcox's stateroom, and it's empty. They search the stateroom. He's not in there. And then they report back to the captain, the only person not accounted for on the USS Washington is the task force commander, Rear Admiral John D. Wilcox. Um, at that point, the, deck the, uh, the men who were on the deck watch are interviewed by the officer of the deck, the officer of the day. And some of them report seeing Admiral Wilcox um, a little after 10 a.m. that he was walking the deck. One man reports that he looked uh, pale and a bit confused. Uh, another says that he uh, seemed a little out of sorts, a little out of place. But others report that they saw him on the deck just simply walking the deck. Well, now the Admiral's gone. and so. Rear Admiral John D. Wilcox, to this day, uh, is the highest-ranking U.S. Navy sailor to ever go overboard. Um, nobody to this day knows why. There are theories. Uh, the obvious theory, based on the man who said that he looked uh, ashen-faced and a little confused, was that it was a medical issue. Uh, at Rear Admiral Wilcox was in his 60s. He was a World War I veteran, um, and uh, he seemed eccentric, even, even but no more so than the average uh, admiral or, or general. Um, and so <clears throat> the working theory was something medical happened. He slipped. Um, another uh, most recent theory is that in all likelihood, because of the very, very rough seas, he very well might have been seasick. And he might have come up for some fresh air. He might have gone to a deck railing. Again, this is a huge battleship. The USS Washington was an enormous ship. They didn't have men ringing the ship at the railing. 
if you had any common sense, you were inside having coffee um, and in the middle of March at 1030 in the morning. Well, Admiral Wilcox was walking the deck. And if he vomited or he went to the railing for any reason, he very well could have slipped in the ice or slipped right off the railing. However, those are just theories because nobody will now ever know what happened to Rear Admiral John D. Wilcox. His body was never recovered. And uh, the maximum number of people who saw him, the last who saw him alive, numbered about seven. There were six people who saw him in the water. And the last who saw him in the water said that he was face down and not moving. So we can be reasonably, positively assured that he was dead and his body was lost to the sea. Rear Admiral John D. Wilcox, the highest ranking U.S. Navy sailor to ever go overboard and die, I should say. All right, that's the Dark Secret Place. I'll be back tomorrow for Super Hyper Local Sunday at 8 p.m. Uh, thanks to Hector. Thanks to Joey Murata. Thanks to Josh earlier and Michael Chappé. And we'll talk to you tomorrow right here on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk.